chapter 1, we are already seeing that there's rising opposition coming to the ministry of Jesus. And Mark introduces that to us quite quickly now in chapter 2. And there are a number of events that happen straight after each other that describe the rising opposition that Jesus um, begins to experience. And it's interesting to investigate where his opposition comes from. And that's one of the things that we're going to look at this morning. But what I'd like to call this message is Jesus, a friendly Savior. A friendly Savior. And I want to preach this morning like no one here is saved. Is that okay? I'm taking it for granted this morning. I know many of you are saved and you've known Jesus for a long time. But I'd like to preach this morning as if no one here is saved. And I'd just like to present to you a story of a friendly Savior who loves us just as we are. And he wants to, who has the best for us in his heart. All right? So we're going to read together the first 12 verses of Mark. And then I'm going to comment also on uh, the calling of of Matthew at the end of that, but the, the, the verses we're going to really concentrate on this morning are the first 12 verses of Mark. And it says this, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus had a home, just like you and me? And for this uh, point in his life, his home was in Capernaum. That's where his base was. That's where he hung out with his friends and his family was at Capernaum. And it says, Many were gathered there, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, Take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So basically, at the be- this uh, beginning of chapter 2, we see these two, we're going to look at these two events, the healing of the par- paralytic and what that might mean. And then in verse uh, 13 to 17, I'm going to comment, as I said, on the calling of Levi, Matthew, was uh, one of the apostles, was called also in this, in this portion. And what these two incidents show us is a growing hatred and a growing opposition to the person and the ministry of Jesus. And that's exactly what Mark wants us to see. And we looked last week, we looked at this, the, the, the leper and that how his disobedience brought upon Jesus a, a, a profile that he wasn't really looking for. He wanted to get on and preach, and he wanted to proclaim the good news. And so the disobedience of this leper that is, in fact experiences um, the most miraculous kind of healing brings upon Jesus something that 
not destroys, but gets in the way of his ministry. And it gets, and there's this opposition that Mark is anxious for us to see in, in, in these, the second chapter. But first, I just want to comment a little bit. It says, when they returned to Capernaum. I'd like to just comment about Capernaum and say this, that sometimes we, there are times in our lives when we are enjoying great spiritual privilege, great spiritual blessing, and we fail to see it. And this is really illustrated in the story of this town, Capernaum, when you look at the history of Capernaum. It was where Jesus had made his home. It's where Jesus stayed with his friends. And if you read the Gospels, many of the miracles that Jesus did, and much of the preaching that Jesus did, was in the city of Capernaum. But they didn't perceive what they were enjoying. They didn't perceive the great blessing that was being poured out upon them. They didn't perceive it. They didn't actually see it. And um, we read in this passage that he's in his home, Jesus in his home, and there's so many people clamoring to see Jesus that they lift the roof off so that they can get this man in and he can be healed. And it says they were amazed and astonished and they glorified God. But this is the point. Very few people got converted at Capernaum. And we know that from the rest of Scripture and in fact, what Jesus said about Capernaum. In fact, if you read the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 11, verse 23, this is what Jesus says about Capernaum, the town that he stayed in. He says this, You, Capernaum, will you be exalted in heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, and everyone knows about Sodom and Gomorrah in the Old Testament, Jesus says, if Sodom had seen the, ma- the amazing works that you had seen, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, they will be more tolerable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus is speaking very strongly about his hometown and about the hardness of their hearts to him and to his ministry. And I want to put it to you that we would be well advised, we would be wise to learn from this little example of Capernaum. Let us never presume, as God's church, that all that is needed to change a community is to faithfully preach the gospel. I think that would be a presumption. We can have this sense that there's an inevitability that if we just preach the gospel and live the gospel, the community will be transformed. I believe communities are transformed by the preaching of the gospel, or I would not be doing what I'm doing. But what I'm trying to say to you is this, that it shows us there's still an amazing uh, spirit of unbelief upon communities and upon people, and that people's hearts, hearts can become hard, and they, they resist the process of God in their lives. Remember this, Jesus was the perfect preacher. Jesus was the one who preached perfectly to every single person that he had opportunity to. And he demonstrated the perfect will of God through amazing miracles that these people saw before their very eyes, and yet they remained dead in their sin. So what is the point of what I'd like to say to you this morning? is that we, our, our job as God's people is to pray for soft hearts. Our job is to, is to break open something spiritual that we cannot do. 
I, I, I believe this, that God uses the gifts of people. And there are different amazing gifts in this church. But we cannot get anyone saved by ourselves. The Holy Spirit is the one that draws people. The Holy Spirit is the one that takes scales of people's eyes so that they can see that they need Him. He's the one that does that. We have, to, we have to put our energy into saying, God, I'm happy to do what I can do. I will preach, I will lead worship, I will live my life and demonstrate to my family the love of Jesus. But please, Holy Spirit, will you do what I cannot do? Will you soften my friend's heart? Will you show him the need that he has of Jesus that he's not even aware of right now? Amen? I'm saying to you, let's put our energy into prayer as well. We want to do the stuff, but the prayer is what break in, break, breaks open hard hearts. And that's for me what demonstrates uh, the story of Capernaum. Uh, demonstrates. Uh, you know, Paul said this, we are the fragrance of life to those that are being saved, and we are fra- the fragrance of death to those that are perishing. Remember Paul said that? J.C. Ryle, a wonderful Anglican preacher, he put it this way. He said this, the same fire of the Holy Spirit that melts hard hearts seems to harden others like a kiln oven hardening a clay pot. Very, very perceptive, isn't it, what J.C. Ryle is saying? It's like when you hear the faithful preaching of the gospel and you resist it in your heart and you, you stop responding to it, your heart becomes harder and harder and harder. Why does the Scripture say in the Hebrews... And I was reading Hebrews in my own devotions this week. In chapter 11, it says, Today, if you hear the voice of God, what does it say? Do not harden your heart. And then it says, after that, it says, If you harden your heart, what happens? A root of bitterness springs up in your own heart and begins to affect many others. That's what happens. And so I want to encourage you, if God speaks to you today, don't harden your heart. Yeah, that's all I'm asking you today. And secondly, we start to see why Jesus is, is, is criticized. <laughs> and this is what I found amazing. The Pharisees criticized Jesus because he forgives other people. <laughs> That's the first thing he's criticized for, that he forgives people. And so we read the story. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that religious people, worldly people, don't like the claims of Jesus. There's the, these outstanding miracles that people see. It's the religious that resist Jesus. And here, notice when they come to Jesus, um, Jesus confirms and just says, well done on your faith. He, he affirms their faith. And often people ask this question, who has to have faith to see someone healed? I want to just say, anyone needs to have faith. That's what I believe the Scripture says. Sometimes it's the person themselves, that's getting healed, that has faith. Sometimes it's their friends that have faith. Sometimes it's a combination of those things. But we need faith. We need to respond to God's Word. And, uh, but let's not get into this thing of saying, you don't have enough faith and this person has more. And, no, no, no. God moves. He's sovereign. Just you demonstrate faith in your life and we'll let God do what God does. Amen? And so, if you notice, secondly, about the story, God doesn't say much about the sickness. Isn't that, uh, Jesus doesn't say much about the sickness. Isn't that interesting? That would, um, if you're praying for someone that's sick, you would think that you would start with the sickness. <laughs> Jesus does an amazing thing. He kind of sidesteps the sickness and he just says, your sins are forgiven, son. Your sins are forgiven. And why does Jesus do that? 
Well, it's very, very interesting. What he was doing was actually profound because the Jewish people integrally connected sickness and sin. The the, the, the teaching of the rabbis was this, that if you were sick, it was because you had sinned. And so Jesus is actually challenging deeply their way of thinking. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, you read... Uh, the story of Job, his friends made the same accusation against Job. They said, actually, Job, you must have done something to deserve the suffering. That's why you're suffering. You've sinned. And the whole story of Job is that he was a righteous man, that he had done nothing. And he was, there was no punishment that God was meeting out upon him. And maybe this guy that was paralyzed, maybe deep down he thought that there was something in him that it caused him to be paralyzed. That he somehow deserved this. That there was some sin that he hadn't uh, seen, that he had committed, that God was punishing him. And that uh, there was, uh, result was this paralysis in his own life. And so what Jesus really is doing, in fact, I read this this week. There was a saying by the rabbis that said, there's no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. So the rabbis actually preached and said it's not possible for someone to be healed unless all his sins have been forgiven. There was such a strong connection in their theology. So you know what Jesus is doing? The first thing he's demonstrating to this this paralyzed man, he's simply saying this, my son, God is not angry with you. Your sins are forgiven. God is not angry. With one sentence, Jesus deals with this burden of feeling cut off from God, and he heals the man of his paralysis. And in some ways, it's very similar to what we talked about with the leper, that the leper was cut off, and with one word, God restores community with God and community with people. And here, Jesus does the same thing on another level. I say that to you because this is the first thing that God would say to you, and it's the first thing that God says to any one of us. And I want to say, if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, the first thing I want you to hear that God would say to you is He's not angry with you. Your sins are forgiven. That's it. I believe God is calling many people home. saying, come my son, my daughter. When we redo the notices, the the signage outside eventually, I want to say, welcome home. (laughs) I want a big sign outside. Forest Town Church, welcome home. Maybe you say that's that's presumptuous or whatever. No, this should be a place that sinners come home. Come to the Father. Your sins are forgiven. The price has been paid. God is not angry with you. You know what? The second thing I want, the third thing I want you to see, Jesus, the words that Jesus speaks often offend religious people. (laughs) And Jesus doesn't mind that. He stirs it up, in fact. He's making an absolute statement, your sins are forgiven, as if he is the one doing the forgiving, as if he can say that. 
And so here's the point. The point is this. As you know, Jesus had done some supernatural stuff. He had healed the leper. That had brought this fame to him that he wasn't looking for. But what it also did, it stirred up the Jewish authorities. And there was the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were a collection of the scribes and the Pharisees. And it was the highest authority in the Jewish authority in terms of the court of religious belief, if you want to put it like that. The Sanhedrin were the, high, the highest of the higher. And they went around, and their job was to check out that people were actually orthodox in their thinking and that they were not breaking the law. And remember I told you, there was the law of Moses. But in addition to that, the oral tradition of the scribes and the Pharisees had been written down over hundreds of years, and it was collected in the Talmud and the Mishnah. And there were literally hundreds and hundreds of interpretations of Moses' Ten Commandments that the scribes put onto the other people. I just laugh when people say that... Uh, they think some churches are full of religion and legalism. You don't know what religion and legalism is until you've studied the Old Testament. Hundreds and hundreds of laws about how you behave, what you do, how you wash your hands. And we come into these communities of churches that are free and all you ask people to do is to pray and to worship and to love people and people say, don't put legalism on me. It's a joke. Sorry, that's my rant over. You see, Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so he says this challenge to the Pharisees. And it comes to a shock to them that he would even say, your sins are forgiven. And you know under the law of Leviticus 24.16, if you did that, it was considered blasphemy and it was punishable death by stoning. So if you blaspheme by saying... God forgives you. Jesus knows what they were thinking. It says he perceives in his spirit that they questioned within themselves. There's a certain kind of person that has a critical heart and uses logic to try and trap you. Have you ever met such people? You know what they're saying is right, but there's something in their heart that is so critical, it's not for you. Have you ever met those kind of people? Well, Jesus met them right here. Not, their hearts are not for him, and yet they, they are using logic and argument, and it's, all they are using logic and argument for is to try and trap him. And he sees right through that. See, he knows what's happening inside of them. So a good question might be to ask is, how does Jesus know? Does he know because he's God? Or does he know, can we know like Jesus knew then? Oh, I believe we can. Remember why? Because we studied James. And what did James say? James said, if any of you lacks wisdom from heaven, let him ask God, and God is faithful, and he will give to all that ask. You see, we can have that same kind of uh, perception prophetically if we ask God. And I believe that's what Jesus was operating in. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, he had spiritual perception, and he could tell what was happening in their heart. He wasn't being suspicious. He was, that's an ugly thing, isn't it? We don't want a church that's full of suspicious people going around saying, oh, I know what's in your heart and it's not nice. And I know what's... No, you don't judge another person's heart. God judges people's hearts. You leave the judgment to Him. What I am saying is there are times where suddenly you just have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you just know something that is happening and it helps to bring freedom to that person. It's a different thing. Yeah? You hear what I'm saying? And here Jesus has that wisdom from heaven and He just knows what's happening in these Pharisees' lives. And so he challenges it by the simple statement saying, your sins are forgiven. And then he says, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk. Well, why does Jesus say that? Well, he has the crunch. Can I ask you a question? How do you prove that anyone's sins are forgiven? 
How do you prove it? You can't demonstrate it in any other way, can you? Well, you see, Jesus was very, very clever. So he's saying to them, actually, this statement, your sins are forgiven, only God knows the truth. I can't demonstrate that right now. But you believe that if this man is healed, his sins have been forgiven him. That's what you say you believe. Right, well, watch, watch this. This is what Jesus is saying. Okay, now I'll demonstrate it. You say, I'm not able to forgive sins? Well, I'll say to this man, get up and walk. And he takes up his mat and he walks home. Jesus is saying, you, I can't, you, you might not be able to prove the statement, your sins are forgiven, but I can demonstrate to you that this man is going to rise up and walk. And that's why he does what he does. You get it? He's demonstrating. He's, Jesus was the most challenging man in the most loving way. <laughs> wish we could get that right more, isn't it? I wish I could get that right more. Just, just such a loving man, full of compassion, but he didn't let people get away with their nonsense. These Pharisees are heaping stuff on people, and he says, no, let me just show you. You say, I can't say the words, your sins are forgiven. Well, let me demonstrate it. Son, God's not angry with you. Get up and walk. He takes up his mat, and he walks home. <laughs> These Pharisees were caught out at their own game, and Jesus defeats them. And he leaves behind a baffled set of legal, theological experts. I would imagine they were very angry as well. Isn't that amazing? Religious people get frustrated. Religious people get angry. Why? Because God doesn't always behave like they want him to behave. God does extraordinary things that freak them out. And he doesn't always play by the rules. And so... The thing is this, the sober thing in this story is that Jesus knew at that very moment he was signing his own death warrant. He knew he had taken on these people and that they would try and kill him. So what does it mean then? I want to look um, lastly for this section. What does it mean that Jesus can forgive sins? That little phrase, Jesus forgives sins. Well, I think there are three ways that we could understand that. First, we could, we could take it to mean that Jesus is simply conveying God's forgiveness onto someone else. Well, the best example I can think of that is David. Remember David? He steals Uriah's wife and he sleeps with her, Bathsheba, and eventually, he doesn't repent, eventually Nathan the prophet comes to him and points out what he's done and he does repent. And what does Nathan say to him in verse uh, 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 12? He says, The Lord has put away your sins, you shall not die. Nathan is not forgiving David. He's conveying unto David the fact that God had already forgiven David and he's helping David to see that and understand that. So there's a, he's like conveying what God has already done and making someone understand. We can read that portion like, like that, um, what Jesus is doing. But I don't think it's, it's true, but it doesn't, it doesn't show the fullness of what God is doing there. Secondly, we could take it like this, that actually Jesus is God's representative. Uh, the best way I can think of it is like, God has given Jesus power of attorney. If I gave you power of attorney, what would it mean? It would mean my goods, my house, everything that I had, you would be acting on my behalf. And so your decision, whatever you decided, if I wanted something done and I asked you to have power of attorney, whatever you decided would be legally binding and you would, it would be like my word. Your word would be my word. Well, we could understand it like that. 
that Jesus is God's representative. God has given Jesus power of attorney. And so when Jesus speaks, he's speaking on God's behalf. Like that, we could understand it like that. But I think this, this is what I think is the fullness of what Jesus is demonstrating to us in his person, in who he is. The whole essence of Jesus' life and ministry that we see is he's showing us God's attitude towards his people. He's living out, demonstrating God's heart towards his people. And what did the people of God understood up until this time? They had, to, they had to understood that God was stern, that God was a God of judgment, that God was a God of rules and regulations, and you had to follow the stuff that Moses had given. And Jesus said, no, I've come to fulfill all of that stuff. All of those rules and regulations, if you simply believe in me, you are fulfilling them anyway, because God looks upon your life and it pleases him that he sees your, uh, the perfection of Christ upon your life. And uh, I want to say what Jesus is demonstrating here is the attitude of God the Father towards his people. That God is not angry with anyone. He's angry with sin, as I've said before. He doesn't like sin, but he's not angry with people. He wants to draw people to himself. And Jesus demonstrates that right here. So Jesus, quite literally, through his life, brings down the forgiveness of the Father on earth. And without the ministry of Jesus, we would not have known of the forgiveness of God like we do. And so Jesus is literally saying to this paralyzed man, I tell you here now that you're forgiven. And in that moment, he perfectly shows God's attitude towards you and towards me, to all of his people. He could say, I forgive you, because God was saying in him, I forgive you. I want all of you to hear this morning that God forgives you. (laughs) God forgives me. Whatever we've done, he forgives. And I want to say, I believe there are some here today that need to hear again Saying God, God saying to them, I'm not angry with you. I forgive you. I love you just as you are. I have a new destiny and a new future for you. And that brings me on to the last thing I want to say this morning, that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Let's look at verse 13. It says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was touching them, uh, sorry, teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, To those who are well, they do not need a doctor, but only those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And it's such a powerful... I mean, if you just... If you do one thing this week, meditate on that thing. I did not come for those that are well. I came for those that are sick. Let God speak to you. I've been thinking about that a lot this week. 
It's incredibly challenging. Here's the second thing that Jesus is criticized for by religious people. <laughs> they don't like the fact that he loved those that everyone else hated. That's why they're angry. Because Jesus loved people. He loved people that no one else loved. <laughs> and so they get their noses out of the joint and they, they hate him. Because he loved people. And so we read of this sudden, sudden conversion of this tax collector, Levi, Matthew. It's just interesting. I was just thinking, you know, slowly the doors of the, of the synagogues are being closed to Jesus. Why? Because he's getting in the face of the scribes and the Pharisees. So slowly he's not able to teach in the synagogues anymore. So what does he do? He goes to his hometown, which is his mission base, and he starts to just walk by the lake. And he gets on boats and he just preaches. Why? He preaches out in the open because... The, the synagogues are being closed to him. And so, well, it's quite a, a, a usual way that rabbis did teach, actually, that their disciples would follow them just during the day and they would chat and talk and ask questions and that's how they learned. And so Jesus does this and these, these disciples are, are asking questions as they go and he, and he ends up here at a toll booth. And remember I said to you that Galilee was an amazing commercial center. Um, it was where... A whole lot of cultures came together, ancient roads came together. And there was a saying in the old days that said, Judea, Judea, Judea is on the way to nowhere, but Galilee is on the way to everywhere. So Jesus picks a, a happening place to start his ministry. And um, at that time, Palestine was divided up, and Judea was a Roman province. province. Galilee was ruled by Herod Antipas, who was a Jewish um, governor, and he was son of Herod the Great. And Capernaum was the first major town in this territory of, of Herod Antipas. And by nature, it was a frontier town because it was where all these roads converged. And so, because it was a frontier town, it's a place where goods were sold and goods were bought, and therefore, there was custom and excise even those days, and there was taxes to be paid. And so, Capernaum was a logical place for tax, a customs base. And so Matthew, he's not working for the Romans, he's working for the local Jewish governor, uh, Herod Antipas, and he's, um, he's collecting taxes on behalf of the governor. And so, once again, we see this amazing conversion of this hated man. Remember the, the other tax collector we read about in the Gospels is Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was even more hated because he, he, he worked for the Romans. All right? The oppressors. Matthew was working for those that had sold out to the system. So he was still hated. He was still absolutely hated by these guys. And I guess, are there any workers here from the receiver of revenue? Anyone? My apologies if you do work for the receiver of revenue. What I'm just saying is, people that collect taxes, taxes very seldom are popular, are they? <laughs> Whenever we have to fill in our tax return, it's always like, okay, I know I've got to do this because it's right, but... You don't rejoice to give tax away, do you? That's why people try and avoid paying tax, which is not a good thing. But my point is that in, the old, in, in, in this time, the tax collectors were even more hated than, than normal. Why? Because there was no, they didn't really know how much tax they had to pay. And so tax collectors used that as a loophole to exploit as much money out of people as they could. And they lined their own pockets with other people's money. And that's why the tax collectors were so hated. And uh, I read this week, there's a Greek writer called Lucian. He said, tax collectors are the same as adulterers, panderers, flatterers, and psychopaths. Psychophants. If you know what a psychophant is, if you've read uh, Charles Dickens' novels, remember that guy Uriah Heep? Very humble, very humble. You know that guy? 
He was a social climber. He was an unfeeling social climber that exploited people to get his way. Well, that's what Lucy and this Greek writer is saying. Tax collectors, they're those kind of people. They just exploit people with unfeeling heart just to get money and get their own way. So they weren't popular. But notice this. Jesus offers friendship to someone that no one else wants to be friends with. Doesn't that challenge you? Changes me. I like hanging out with my mates. I've got good friends. But what about the person that no one else wants to hang out with? <laughs> Jesus chose those kind of people. He loved those kind of people. And Matthew gives up everything to follow Jesus. I was thinking about this. Peter, Andrew, James, and John still had fishing boats. If it didn't work out with Jesus, they could still go back to their fishing Matthew, when he says, Jesus, I'll follow you, and he gets out of that tax booth, there's no going back for Matthew. There's no job to go back to. He is staking everything he has on the person of Jesus. What about us as believers, as his church? Do we hedge our bets, or are we staking all that we have on the person of Jesus? And then lastly, and I'm finishing with this, Jesus says this amazing thing, that he didn't come for those that are well, he came for those that are sick. And pretty soon we see in the story that once Levi comes to this radical conversion, Matthew comes to this radical conversion, the house of Jesus is full of sinners and tax collectors. It's like Levi's gone out and said to all his mates, you've got to meet this guy, Jesus. And so he invites all these guys and they fill up the house. And can I just point out to you again, the first people that followed Jesus were those that had rejected the religious system, those that rejected the rules and regulations, those that said, I can't live by that, I won't live by that thing. And the Greek word here for sinner is actually very interesting because it it can be used in two ways. It can be used... Those that broke the moral law, in other words, people that committed adultery and murder and all those moral things, it can mean that. It also can mean this, though, those that rejected the law of the scribes. Said, no, I'm not going to, they were also called sinners. What am I saying to you? I'm saying the, the Jews would see the following things in the same way. Those that committed adultery were seen in the same way as those that ate pork. You get it? Those that were committed murder were seen in the same way as those that didn't ritually wash their hands correctly before they ate. Under the law, they were sinners. And so they just lumped everyone together. Sinners! Jesus ate with sinners. And certainly there were some people that probably had committed adultery. But a whole bunch of them just said, I'm not washing my hands like that. You with me? And so these are the kind of people that Jesus made friends with. And these are the kind of people that right from the start, Jesus chooses as his disciples, and he invests in them, and he starts to train them. Ordinary men and women, just like you, and just like me. I just want to look at this phrase as I finish this morning. Why did Jesus say, it's not the well that need a doctor, it's the sick that need a doctor? It sounds to me, first, it sounds to me that, that he's saying, 
He has no use for good, solid, ordinary people. I don't think he's saying that, though. <laughs> That's not what he means. If you're hearing that this morning, I want to say it's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is this. He can do nothing for people that think that they are so good that they do not need anything from Jesus. That's what he's saying. The very people that Jesus can do much for, that Jesus can do everything for, are the people that admit that their hearts are broken, that there are things in their lives that they cannot fix themselves, and they need Him to fix them. That's what Jesus is saying. If you are here this morning, and you are saying, I don't need anything from Jesus. Nothing can do for me. I'm okay. But I want to say to you lovingly, then there's nothing that Jesus can do for you. But if you are sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you know that you've carried some stuff in your life that you can't fix, that there are relationships in your life that are broken that you can't fix, and you come to Jesus and you say, Jesus, I need you to do that for me, he can do everything for you. That is what Jesus is saying. And that's why we sing that Jesus has washed all our guilt away. That Jesus has given us a new start, a fresh creation in our lives. We become new people when we are born again. That's what we mean. I am not saying this. Please hear me. I am not saying that after you are saved, you walk around carrying guilt and telling yourself that you are still a sinner, 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 sinner. I am not saying that. Once we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The grace of God has set us free. We are completely restored and we carry no guilt, no shame, no condemnation. Are you with me? But we come to Jesus saying, Jesus, without you, I am in trouble. That's what I'm saying. You get it? See, the Pharisees, they said, oh, then we don't need you. We're okay. We just follow the rules. We actually don't need you to save us. We can save ourselves by following the rules. And Jesus collects around them a whole bunch of people that knew they couldn't save themselves, that they were sick and they needed to be rescued. And immediately Jesus deliberately and consciously seeks out the neediest kinds of people and says, I can help you if you ask me. You see, I've been fascinated as I've read this and meditated on this portion that it's the religious people that do not like Jesus being friendly. Isn't that amazing? Why? Well, God has the habit of breaking out religious cliques, doesn't he? And sometimes churches can be places that are cliques of people that get together and feel good about themselves and and God has a habit of breaking open those cliques and including people that are not in the clique. In the clique. How do you say it? Clique. Let this church never be a place of little cliques. The gospel always sets us free. Amen? To include everyone. God so loved the world that he came for all of us. Let this be a place that reflects the world. God's heart for all nations, all people. It's the gospel. I want to say this. 
It's great that we come from different nations. It's great that you're proud about your national heritage. It's great. It's a wonderful thing. But you know, what makes you clean in God's eyes is not that you're English, that you have a vast tradition of history behind you. It's not that you're Welsh, that you play rugby and sing really well. That's not what makes you clean before Jesus. It's not that you're Scottish, that you have bagpipes and kilts and brave hearts. That's not what makes you clean. It's not that you're South African, that we have Nelson Mandela and we have Buravos and rugby. That is not what makes you clean. The only thing that makes you and I clean is the blood of Jesus. That's what makes you and I acceptable to Him. That's why we can have a church full of different kinds of people because we are not saying what makes me clean is the fact that I'm South African and I'll only hang out with South Africans. Or what makes me clean is that I'm English and I'll only hang out with English people. No, what makes me clean is the blood of Jesus. And because He's made me right with His Father, I can hang out with anybody and be happy. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And my friends, that is frightfully good news. It means we can enjoy everybody's culture and just love on everybody freely because He set us free on the inside. And we love people with all our hearts and we don't care where they're from. Because why? Because we're going to the same Father in heaven. And maybe the Welsh will lead worship in heaven and that will be a glorious thing. Maybe they will. I don't know. We'll wait and see when we get there. The Africans are going to lead the dancing, that's for sure. But Jesus, we're doing this series called Getting to Know Jesus so we can understand the person of Jesus. I'm struck again and again. Jesus combines humility with absolute authority and sweet friendship. That's what he does over and over again with just people that no one else will love. Man, let this church become like that. So, Today, I'm saying to you, if you are visiting this morning and you know that there's a sickness in your heart that you cannot cure yourself, there is one who can touch you. There is one who can forgive you right now. And just say, God is not angry with you. Come home. Come to your Father. And we want to pray with you. And it's easy. The gospel is so easy, people say it can't be true. (laughs) The gospel is so easy. Jesus just says this, if you believe in your heart, let me put it in my words, if you know in your heart that you are sick outside of Jesus and you need a doctor, you need to be healed, all you have to do is believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And at that moment, you are made well. And you are born again. And the Bible uses all this language. You are a new creation. You leave the kingdom of darkness and you come into the kingdom of light. And you never go back. And you start to walk by the Spirit and enjoy Jesus. And it starts to change and transform your life. And you never carry guilt anymore from that moment on. But you have to start by asking, saying, Jesus, I need you.